Before we dive into that passage, let's pray. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you work in us this evening, that you're at work by the power of the Spirit in us to change us, to make us more like Jesus. We pray that this evening you're at work in us to help us see how dependent we are on your mercy and how dependent we are in all things. In the name of Jesus, amen. When I used to play grade cricket, we had pre-season training. Pre-season training was dreaded by everyone. We had to turn up for six weeks prior to actually training for cricket on a cold oval with a coach who had a smirk on his face because he knew what we had before us. Each time we turned up for these six weeks, he'd put us through our paces. We'd do shuttle runs. We'd be doing burpees. We'd be doing massively long jogs. We'd be doing push-ups, sit-ups, the whole works. Then after the end of the six weeks of this pre-season training, they'd put us through fitness tests. So we had to pass the fitness tests in order to actually start training for cricket. So if you didn't pass the fitness test, you'd turn up the next week to do the fitness test again, and if you didn't pass them, you'd do all the fitness training again until you passed all the fitness tests. Now, I think in life, we're being tested, our fitness is being tested in all sorts of ways. Maybe not physically all the time, but if you're going for a job, your fitness for the job is being tested, your CV, your record of the past, your achievements plays a big part in whether you'll get the job. Um, even when you have the job, your achievements of the KPIs, the key performance indicators, are crucial for you to maintain your job. You need to prove your fitness all the time in relationships as well, especially if you've broken trust in a relationship. Sometimes you need to prove your trustworthiness again. We're being tested in all sorts of ways in our lives. And this evening... We're looking at who is fit for the kingdom of God. That's the question we're asking tonight. Do we have to prove our fitness for the kingdom of God? And if we do, how? That's the question that tonight's passage brings before us. In the last few weeks, we've been looking at the Gospel of Luke. And I've just realised that I need a pointer. We've been looking at the Gospel of Luke, and we've been looking at Luke chapters 16 to 18. We've been on the road with Jesus as he walks to Jerusalem. He's been walking to Jerusalem from chapter 9, and he's going to get there in chapter 19. But we're on the road with Jesus for these two chapters. And way back in the, at the beginning of the Gospel... Jesus, in chapter 4, said he'd come to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. So he mentions the kingdom of God, and then throughout the gospel, we hear of this kingdom again and again. In chapter 10, he says the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God has come near in the ministry of Jesus, in his words and his actions. As we've seen Jesus heal, as we've seen Jesus cast out demons, as we've seen Jesus calm the storm, we're getting a sense of what it would be like to live in God's kingdom. The last couple of weeks, we've been looking at how to respond when the kingdom of God comes near. The healed leper a couple of weeks ago, the, the healed leper who returned in thanks to Jesus, shows us a great response 
to the coming kingdom is to be thankful to Jesus. And last week we read of the persistent widow who kept on nagging the unjust judge. And the lesson of that was that we should be persistent in prayer with the kingdom coming so close. Tonight, though, tonight's passage is all about how do we enter the kingdom? What makes a person fit to enter the kingdom of God? And so we're going to start in verse 9 and we're going to start with what makes someone unfit for God's kingdom. Now, verse 9 tells us exactly who Jesus' words are aimed at. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down upon everyone else. Now, my question to you now is, do you think that includes you? I'm not sure how you responded to that verse when you first heard it. But I think it's a subtle litmus test of our hearts. If you automatically think that that description of people doesn't include you, then I think you really need to listen to what Jesus is about to say. If we're too quick to not include ourselves in that group, we need to be careful. So there's a subtle test, I think, in the first verse. But let's read on from verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now, we've got to be fair to this person, this Pharisee. We've got to be fair because he fasts, which is good in and of itself. He tithes, so gives some of his things away, a tenth of his things away. He thanks God in prayer. These in and of themselves are good things. We've got to be fair to the Pharisee. And we've got to remember as well, the first hearers of this parable of Jesus's would have assumed that this Pharisee is an upstanding man. We're so used to Pharisees being the bad guys in Jesus's parables, but that's not the way the hearers would have first heard this. The Pharisee in Jesus' day was the good guy. He was the community guy. He was the upright standing guy in the community you'd go to for wisdom. He's the guy that would volunteer first for a community event. He's the guy that all the little kid Pharisees would look up to as the Pharisee was walking past with his robes and, and they'd think, I want to be like him when I grow up. He's a good guy in their society or he's seen as a good guy in their society. But if we look closer at his prayer in verses 11 and 12, it's only 33 words long, so it's not long at all. It's two sentences. But if we look closely, we see a heart that's unfit for the kingdom of God. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. So first you get the posture of the Pharisee. He stands up tall by himself so that everyone could see him. And then you get the content of his prayer. He thanks God, but he's actually not thanking God for anything God's done. Anything in particular of God, his character or an action that God's done. He really just thanks God that he's so great. That's pretty much what he's saying. I thank you, God, that I'm so great. And then if you notice how many times the Pharisee refers to himself in the prayer... You realize how many times he refers to himself, uh, how many times it outweighs how many times he refers to God, if that sort of made sense. He refers to himself five times in the prayer and God once. God, I, I thank you that I am not like other men, 
Oh, that is tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth and of all I get. That's five times. Trust me, that didn't really work. But it's five times he refers to himself. It's pretty hard not to get the impression that God himself should be honoured to have this Pharisee on his team. This Pharisee is on a different level to other people, or so he thinks. And in verse 11, um, the NRV says that the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, but it could just as easily be translated that he stood up and prayed to himself. I've got a feeling Jesus might have been a bit more pointy than our translation suggests. I think it could be that he prayed to himself. He's not praying to God here. He's praying to himself. We've got to be really careful um, about paying this Pharisee out too much. We've got to be really careful about putting this Pharisee out at an arm's length. As I said just before, we, we can't too quickly assume we're not in this category of people. By focusing on the arrogance of the Pharisee's heart, we might miss the whole point. This would have been a surprise to his hearers, a big surprise. And the surprise would have caused them to automatically wonder whether they're fit for the kingdom of God or not. Because all their assumptions have just been shattered by Jesus. And so if we allow this parable to breeze over us without it challenging us, without it examining our own hearts, we'd miss what this passage is all about. So we need to be careful. And, and, you know, we're at church and I'm up the front. We're the type of people that might too quickly think too highly of ourselves. So we need to be really careful. And so I have here five symptoms of a heart that might be on the way to pride or it might have already fallen into pride. So five symptoms. I want you to read these symptoms and test yourself. Ask yourself, are these symptoms characteristic of you? Because if they are, you need to be careful. So first, you more frequently find faults in others than in yourself. You find yourself speaking harshly about others. You're more concerned about what other people think of you than the reality of your own heart. You're quick to defend yourself when somebody challenges you. You tend to drift towards associating with people who are high in worldly status. If any of those symptoms describe your heart, then you really need to listen on to what else Jesus has to say. So we're going to return to the passage in verse 13. We've looked at the heart that's unfit for the kingdom of God. We're going to look at the heart that's fit for the kingdom of God now. So verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. During my exercise and sports science degree, we did a lot of research into lung tissue. Lungs are particularly important for exercise, it turns out. And if during an anatomy tutorial, the tutor was describing all the features of healthy lung tissue, if he then said, I'll just go get a specimen as an example of this healthy lung tissue, if he then you know, rolled out on the trolley a specimen 
that was from the lungs of a 30-year, three-pack-a-day smoker, then we would have been confused. We'd be wondering what he's doing, if he knew what he was doing, if this was some type of joke. I think that's how the, the people listening to Jesus would have first felt when they heard in verse 14 Jesus say, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. In the ears of his hearers, tax collectors were the prime example of someone unfit for the kingdom of God. They were the outcast. They were the scum of society. Pure and simple. The tax collectors, they were working for the, the Roman overlords, collecting heavy, oppressive taxes from the Jews to give to the Romans. For the Jews, that was betrayal. The tax collectors betrayed their people. They weren't worthy of sympathy. They weren't worthy to be called the people of God. And not only that, they not only took taxes for the Romans, but they were known, they were notorious for taking too much tax from the Jewish people for themselves. And so from the beginning of the parable, Jesus has been setting up a compare and contrast. From the very beginning, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, one a tax collector. It's, they're polar opposites. And as he goes on, we get a compare and contrast. So in verse 11, the Pharisee stands by himself. And in verse 13, the, the tax collector stands far off. In verse 11 and 12, the Pharisee thanks God for himself. Thanks that I'm so good. And in verse 13, the tax collector addresses God in humility and asks for mercy. In verse 14, the Pharisee returns home without that which he would have assumed he had. And the tax collector returns home with something he would have only dreamt of. In verse 14, Jesus summarizes, referring to the Pharisee, all who exalt themselves will be humbled and all who humble themselves will be exalted. There's a compare and contrast. These people are polar opposites. The Pharisee socially esteemed, the tax collector looked down upon the Pharisee not getting what he assumed or what he thought he was entitled to, the tax collector getting what he thought he'd never get. Right standing, forgiveness, mercy from the Almighty. The heart of the tax collector is a heart fit for the kingdom of God. His heart looks for no self-congratulation, There's no summary of good deeds. There's no looking around horizontally, comparing himself to other people, trying to rate where he stands. There's none of that. There's only one recognition of the tax collector, and that is his need for God's mercy. To very loosely translate verse 14, the best way up in the kingdom of God is down, and the quickest way down in the kingdom of God is to lift yourself up. It's a very loose translation of verse 14. So I hope you see the genius of this parable. Jesus is shooting an arrow straight at the heart of the prideful, the proud, whilst at the same time comforting the lowly. It's genius. So you might not find yourself standing with the Pharisee with a proud heart you might be the opposite you might be the first person to to see the sin in your life you might be very aware of your sin of your brokenness of your need for god's mercy and this parable comes in alongside you as a great comfort that heart 
that heart that recognizes its needs, need for God's mercy, is the heart that's fit for the kingdom of God. God's mercy is ready to flood over you. The best way up in the kingdom of God is down, and the best way down is to lift yourself up. Jesus makes it really clear the kingdom of God is not for the cream of the crop. The kingdom of God is for those who know their own brokenness and who know there's only one person who can help. Rosaria Butterfield, I love that name, was a university professor at an esteemed university in the US. And she had three words to describe Christians and their God, Jesus. And those three words were stupid, pointless, and meaningless. That was Rosaria's view of Christians. Now, Rosaria was a morality and a social justice warrior. She was passionate about Freud, about Marx, about Darwin. She was passionate about lifting up the most disempowered in society. She and her lesbian partner were activists for AIDS and they worked tirelessly for the literacy of children all around the world. Her life with her lesbian partner was happy, it was meaningful and it was full. From the perspective of most people in our world, she was quite a fine, upstanding individual. Though in time, um, as a university lecturer, um, her research led her to the Bible. She was trying to work out where Western civilization had got its, what she thought, were unhealthy attitudes to sexuality. So it, it led her to the Bible. And so in her research, as she was studying the Bible and the texts that led to certain views of um, gender and sexuality, in her study, it led her to an older couple named Ken and his wife, Floyd. In Rosaria's own words, we became friends. They, Ken and Floyd, entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I'd never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. Rosaria continued to meet with Ken and Floyd for months. And as she read the Bible with them and by herself, she says in her own words, the words of the Bible overflowed into my world. I fought against the Bible with all my might. Then one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover and an hour later sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. Conspicuous with my butch haircut, I reminded myself that I came to meet God, not fit in. And then a few months later, one ordinary day, she continues, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked. Ken was there, Floyd was there, that same church she'd stumbled into months before, they were there too. Jesus triumphed and I was a broken mess. That's a heart that's fit for the kingdom of God. Coming before God, open-handed, naked, and dependent for mercy. That's a heart fit for the kingdom of God. 
We're still not done. We're going to continue looking at this passage from verses 15 to 17. People were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God is like a little child. Like a little child, sorry, will never enter it. So, so far we've talked about the prideful heart and how that's unfit for the kingdom of God. We've talked about the heart that's fit for the kingdom of God, comes to God in need of mercy. And now we're going to look a bit more about or into that, that healthy heart of the Christian. How else might you describe that healthy heart? Enter the children. A young child is totally dependent on the love and care of their parents. I know this from observation so far, but so far I've observed that when a hungry child cries, the mum and dad come along to help and feed them. When a baby is upset and they cry, the mum and dad come along to cuddle them. When they poop themselves and cry, the mum and dad come along to clean them up. Babies are helpless on their own. They depend 100% on their parents. It's the same with us and God. We might sometimes trick ourselves into thinking that we don't really need God that much, that we're pretty fine on our own, that we're pretty self-sufficient. We might look at all the certificates on our wall, maybe a degree that's, that's framed on our work wall. We might look at our bank balance Maybe not all of you here, but some of us, we might look at our bank balance and think, I'm doing pretty well on my own. But if we were to think such thoughts, we'd be getting it all wrong. We really do need God. Everything we have is a gift from God. Even the breath that we're breathing now is by the sustenance of God. Billy Graham passed away recently and in his lifetime I didn't realize he spoke the gospel proclaimed the gospel to over 80 million people that's face to face not face to face but you know in a stadium I'm not talking about over the airwaves over 80 million people while he was present that's huge he's shared the gospel with more people in history than anyone else but the thing is if he ever graduated from a childlike faith, if he ever began thinking he could make it on his own without God, then he would have been moving away from the kingdom of God. Even the great Billy Graham could never have moved away from childlike faith. There's no graduating from childlike faith. Thankfully, it seems he never did. But the fact still remains. A heart fit for the kingdom knows its full dependence on God. So where are your hearts at? Where are your hearts at right now? And I think there's a simple question to ask. How often do you pray? How often do you cry out, metaphorically maybe, to God in prayer, like a child does for its parents? How often do you give thanks to God for all his gifts to you? No matter how you answer those questions, I think we can always be growing in our childlike faith. 
We live in a world that's all about self-sufficiency and independence and self-sufficiency, all these words, self-confidence, all these words. The self, we need to be working against the grain to realise that we are dependent on God. Because it's true. That's what childlike faith realises. So I have three suggestions to help us grow in this childlike dependence. First, I think this one I'm, I'm working on at the moment, it's small. I think it's significant. As soon as you rise in the morning, as in literally get up out of bed, pray a one-sentence prayer, whatever it might be. Pray, God, give me all I need today to live for you. Uh, pray that, pray, Lord, help me at work today. Lord, help me, oh, thank you for giving me another day. Pray a one-sentence prayer. It could be anything, but start the, the day with prayer. A one-sentence prayer to start the day. That's my first suggestion to help you grow in this childlike faith. My second suggestion is to pray throughout the day. Here at church, we talk a lot about quiet times, having time set aside during the day to read the Bible and pray. Really important. But I'm talking now about praying regularly throughout the day. And this isn't necessarily stopping to pray. This is praying while you, while you live. As you get your coffee, thank you, Lord, for this coffee. As you go to a meeting, Lord, help me in this meeting. Give me all I need to communicate well. As you meet a friend who's upset, say, Lord, help me. Uh, give, uh, give me words to comfort this person. As you're at work and there's a co-worker who's super frustrating, Lord, give me patience. Just pray regularly throughout the day. You're a child of God. He wants you to cry out in prayer to him. So pray regularly throughout the day. That's my second suggestion. And, and thirdly, always thank God for food. That is, always say grace. The word grace means gift. And saying grace is just a, a beautiful recognition that the food in front of you is a gift from God. That, that warm, beautifully smelling soup or whatever it is, is a gift from God. And saying grace is recognizing that. And as I was thinking of this suggestion, I remembered a, a quote from G.K. Chesterton. Oh, I don't have it. I'm going to read it out. Okay? I'm going to read it out. Oh, I don't have it on my notes. Yeah. It was a really good quote. I'm going to put it on Facebook. It's all about saying grace is really in a window into a whole new way of life. G.K. Chesterton says something like, You say grace. That's nice. I say thanks whenever I go fencing. When it, oh, I'm not going to try. I'm going to put it on Facebook. The whole idea is that he says thanks whenever he does something good. It's, a, it's, sort of a, it's, a, it's an attitude to life. It's a relationship he has with his father. So say thanks for food, but say thanks throughout the day. So I started this morning by inviting you all into the cold Saturday morning sports field where we were just about to undergo some fitness training. I had to go through the fitness drills in order to pass a fitness test at the end of the six weeks. Jesus, tonight, says that we also need to be fit for the kingdom of God. But because the kingdom of God is so different than what we're used to, Proving our fitness for the kingdom of God is not about showing how able we are. It's really recognizing how unable we are. 
being fit for the kingdom of God is being humble, is being broken-hearted, really, and it's recognising our need for the mercy of God. The best way up is down, and the best way down is lifting yourself up in the kingdom of God. That's why in the letter of James, chapter 4, James says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're so rich in mercy. We're so undeserving. Your mercy flows to us, even though we have no entitlement to it, no right to claim it. It's a gift from you. Give us all hearts that see this, that realize this, that have a sense of this. Help us all realize how dependent on you we are so that we pray to you more. May our lives be a great joy as we live them with you, crying out to you in prayer and thanking you for all your gifts. Amen.